Today on Between the Lines, meeting our challenges as a nation and as individuals through the lessons of Sir Winston Churchill with Professor Larry Arne. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Dr. Arne is the president of Hillsdale College and a most respected professor of politics and history. With his book, Churchill's Trial, he shows how the greatest statesman of the 20th century left us timeless wisdom to guide and shape our next century. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old, and it was... You do, need, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book, are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. I don't get a chance to really talk about what's real, and that is the first Dr. Arne, it is a pleasure to have you here on Between the Lines. I've heard you on the radio many times, and I always said, if he comes to L.A., I want him on my show. So welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Barry. It's, you're the best at this kind of thing. I'm proud to be here. Uh, well, you know, you asked this question in the very beginning of the book. It says, why Churchill? And I'm not going to ask you why, because you give the answer right away. It is, this is the statesman of the 20th century, and his philosophies and his wisdom definitely penetrates to our heart and soul right now. And if, if it wasn't for him, Lord knows what condition even the world would be in now if it wasn't for his vigilance against fascism and then against totalitarianism of socialism. So there are lessons for all of us to be learned still from Winston Churchill. Yeah, well, the, the classics say that uh, statesmanship is interesting to study and great to study because how do we live our own lives? We have to make choices all the time, and we need principles and a comprehension of circumstances. Of the great statesman, Churchill's, the time in which he lived is most like ours, for just the reasons you said. Uh, war is more dangerous than it's ever been. The ability for despotism to rule with an iron hand in detail and all across the globe is greater than it's ever been. Churchill faced those things. But he faced them, and I'm going to use these words, we must try to do them in some way that is right according to a standard. Mm. And it's the standard for him was both outside of himself, meaning a higher standard, as well as the, those details internally that had to be his prudence, his, his, his own sense of courage, his own sense of valor and, and what character. So it's sort of, he was, he was aware of this connection in a very unique way. If you study, that's right. I think he, he had a classical understanding of what we do as humans, right? So it's, it's wrong to kill, but sometimes it's okay. Or at least most people think so because in war and, you know, killing Osama bin Laden, national celebration of that. So the wrongness of killing and the rightness of preserving life is mediated by the circumstances that prevail. And you, each individual person who makes choices, is in those circumstances. And Churchill had a systematic understanding of that, and that's where he found his responsibility. His volume of writing, I always knew was great, but never until I read this did I realize how vast it was. Was it 15 million words? Yeah. 15 million words, and I had no idea some of them included novels. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how does a man running a country in battle, how does a man have the t 
time, obviously it was a form of genius, but there was also, as you write, many contradictory necessities because he, he was able to hold two thoughts of the opposite in his mind and weigh which ones and felt that it was necessary for him to provide that wisdom. Yeah, isn't it right in our own lives that hard choices are the ones where you have to give up one good for a better one or suffer one evil to avoid a worse one? It's always like that. Churchill understood that systematically, and the way you do that involves thinking through the details. So all this writing of Churchill's, that Churchill wrote 50 books, and they're worth reading. And that's what the books are about. They help you understand how to make practical the highest things we know. He also, if he was around today, they would call him a flip-flopper. And, and they always <laughs> yes. use that politically very negatively. But Churchill, in the book, a number of times you say, did it with pride, actually, oh, yeah. because it, it's as if, you know, he thought, wait, wait a minute. If I've learned something new that changes my mind, why wouldn't I now change my mind and express it and let you know? So it's not really a flip-flop. I'm not just floating in the wind. I'm thinking about these issues and I'm changing my mind. And he does throughout history that a number of times, and you even indicate he was proud of it. Oh yeah, made it, proclaimed it. So first of all, the heart of British political life and pu public life, common life, was a chamber, a, a room, not that big, the House of Commons. And you, and Churchill, for 50 years, he goes in there every day, and you can turn left or you can turn right. And you're, you're changing parties if you change the way you turn. And there are only two ways to go. And to go to the other party is often referred to in British politics as to rat. And Churchill said, uh, very hard to rat. I re-ratted. <laughs> he went to the Liberal Party and then he came back to the Conservatives. And uh, so, yeah, that's right. And he, he defended that because as the truth is in ultimate things, but also in the circumstances. And when they change, you must change. And, and again, not afraid. See, actually, I want to take that back. In, in the book, you actually say he is afraid. There's, there's a, and that's what makes him even braver and more courageous, is he's a man of deep fears on yeah. many issues, but he's willing to fight through those fears. It's not as if to say Churchill is fearless. He himself admits he was afraid of everything, although he had a great line in war where he didn't think he'd get shot at because he was just <laughs> too, too great of a man to be wasted in that sort of a situation. But he had deep fears, was aware of it as in human nature, and really fought against them. Well, that's right. That's a great definition of courage you just gave. It requires fear. You can't have courage without fear. But Churchill was afraid of this thing, and we should all be afraid of it, in my opinion. Human beings are what they are, right? They're in some ways like God, and in some ways like animals. And they hurt each other, sometimes wrongly. Churchill's point, and he observed this on a battlefield in the Sudan, fighting against one of the first radical Islamic states. He watched them mowed down, these dervishes they were called back then, by British machine guns. And he thought to himself, and he wrote this beautifully later, 
If we're fighting with clubs and knives, there's only so much damage we can do. But what if we get to a place where a single vicious act can do irreparable damage? It's a logical problem. You could put it the way his contemporary C.S. Lewis put it. Uh, the power of man over nature always involves the power of man over man. And the question is, how are we going to use that power? Churchill was afraid that we would abuse it at home and in war. Well, you, you brought up nature. That, the connection between nature and the human mind affected a lot of Churchill's thinking when he was in the liberal, more socialist party and when he went back to the conservative party because he did bring some of the ideologies with him. He was not afraid to even mix and match. As you said, he was in that nether, that nether, what was the, I want to find the right, you said it correctly and I, I, I'm not going to find it now, but he was in that place where you were so-called in the middle, yeah. where no one really wanted to be, but he was again, not a, he wasn't afraid to be there if he knew that something was going to help, as you said, weigh it out, the other cause. So if there was like, in a case, a social safety net, mm -hmm. that would help out the corporate free market, not the corporate, I should be careful, the capitalistic free market, because there would be a sense of equality that needed to be there in order for it to operate. I think I might have said that he lived between the upper and the nether millstones. And that's what it was. That was the uh, exact words. That was it. And, and what does that mean, right? So, first of all, the danger, Churchill thought that the dangers of war were unprecedented, but also the dangers of domestic politics, including in the free countries. He said that the Socialist Party could not realize its ultimate aims without the use of a Gestapo or secret police. And he said that in 1945, when we know what those things are. How do you avoid that? Well, first of all, if people who are worthy, that is say, who want to work and can't, or who get sick, you have to have some kind of an insurance scheme for them. But that's dangerous because what if it turns into handouts that discourage people from working? You could get the unlimited state out of that. On the other hand, if you abandon those people, they might vote, vote socialist and the whole capitalism or free markets are expressions of property rights, Churchill understood, just like the founders of America. And you can't have limited government without those things. So that means that the social safety net could get too big or get divorced from contributions that, that people make, or the social say, or the people could rebel and go to the socialist. Either way could be terribly destructive. And so Somewhere, there's some place in the middle, he thought, that we have to grope to find, and that will preserve our freedom. And grope he did. But this is the thing that I never expected to read about Churchill that you write. And I think it's, in a sense, makes it even grander to me. Because as you, you know, I'm a big Churchill fan. You say his life was, if not a study in failure, at best, the story of many failures that stemmed from his nature. And the last thing in my mind would be a man who wrote 50 books, who saved the free world, who saved the free market, would have been called a failure. And I know you mean it in, in, in a certain way, but I thought that was an interesting human foible to realize that failure is not inherently a bad thing. Well, Ch Churchill worked very hard to avoid the world wars, which he predicted, and he failed, and they came. And they changed his country in ways that he feared they would. And Churchill worked very hard 
to keep the state of Britain liberal with a limited government and to keep the socialists out. And the socialists came in and beat him in 1945 at the pinnacle of his achievement. So those are massive disappointments in his life. And his way was to carry on. You know, it's funny because we the terminology today has changed. When we think of him, and you write in the book, he is the classic liberal who wanted to really protect the liberal regime. We th it's And yet he was a member of the conservative <laughs> party when that happened. We've now, the words themselves have changed their meanings to some extent, where liberalism is different now, yeah, at least right. in our country, and I think even in Britain, than it was when it was really meant less government, which now it seems like it's coming from the other side of the aisle. It really meant really less government in all ways, including your ability to own your own property. Churchill really wanted to take all subsidized housing almost and say, let's make them own it. Let's yeah. let them own it. That will give them a more stake as a citizen rather than we subsidize it. So it's a very different notion of liberalism that sprung out of even the, the Johnson era. Yeah, if, uh, if the Liberal Party in Britain of 1890 uh, existed today in America, 90% uh, of the Republican Party would want to join it. <laughs> I even think it was better. Uh, but Churchill very much longed for that Liberal par Party. And, you know, Churchill always styled himself when he was in the Conservative Party a Tory Democrat, which is another way of saying like those classic 19th century liberals. And, you know, what were they for? They were for a fair chance for everybody, uh, taxes even across the society, the poor not paying much. They were for a strong Britain. They were for defense of freedom when it was necessary for British. And, and they were for the empire as a, as a uh, movement toward liberty around the world. Those were Churchill's politics, and he never abandoned them. Sometimes he served them in the Conservative Party mostly, sometimes in the Liberal Party. He is known, and I first fell in love with him due to his, as you say, indomitable perseverance. And the classic line that I always remember is when he spoke to the British people, and it was never, 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 ever give up. Mm -hmm. But there was another line that you had here that I was unaware of, and I want to share it because it has even just a little, it, it, it's, it's connected, but it has enough of a difference that I want to explore. And that is, never flinch, never wary, never despair. Because that could almost be looked at as an internal mantra of your life, not just something you would say to the people, but it, that has almost like, you know what, in your own life, you should never flinch, you should never wary, you should never despair. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? He, those words are at the end of Churchill's last great speech in the House of Commons after he had given five decades of such speeches. And it's about nuclear weapons, which he, he, he had said with the, with the, with the uh, explosion of the hydrogen bomb, we have entered uh, an era both measureless and laden with doom. But then at the end, he says, uh, he says, deterrence will grow and we may find ourselves once again in an age where peace can reign. Meanwhile, never flinch, never weary, never despair. Another thing 
that I think is so important and we forget because of technology. And I, I'm going to talk about that later in more detail because of one of the appendixes in the book I, I just have to share with people. But first I want to say this is this line, all wisdom is not new wisdom necessarily. <laughs> we forget that. Sometimes the wisdom of our ancestors can be even wiser. Not that we're not evolving, not that we're not getting smarter, not that hopefully we're not eventually getting even wiser. But Churchill really believed that wisdom itself almost stays a certain constant. The wisdom itself is different than knowledge. It's different than technology and what it can do. It's different than a computer being able to contemplate thousands and millions of numbers. Wisdom is more of a spiritual, soulful way of utilizing the mind and of thinking. Yeah, Churchill thought the way the classics thought about that word. That word means, in classic philosophy, and Aristotle especially, it means knowledge that is accumulated of things that are ultimate things, the most important, highest things, the things for which all else is done and that is not changeable. Churchill thought of it like that. And it points to, Churchill, you know, it's funny, Churchill didn't go to college. But he gave himself a fantastic education. And unlike too many politicians today, I will complain of them of both parties. Think about your show. Think about what your show is like. It's literate. It's involved. It's a conversation. It invites people in. Education used to teach students that there are these beautiful, high things that you should learn. And you will be made better by doing that. And it's not just about career success. It's about life success. Churchill had a big sense of that all his life. And, and by the way, he talks about it specifically when it comes to education because he does believe that everyone should have a free education. That's a part of democracy. And people don't even realize that even before America's first declaration of independence, before its constitution, the states, the communities really did have still public schools because it was inherent that if you wanted a great society, you would teach those higher values of wisdom. Not that, by the way, you couldn't supplement it with how to build a computer or how sure. to fix a car. You should, and with other things. But those lessons are the epitome of how you're going to live a life of good character, of virtue, of citizenry. That's the thing, too. He was very much concerned with the authority of a government, especially as it got bigger, that it would almost diminish the citizen rather than evolved the citizen. So it was sort of like the larger it got, the less the role the citizen plays. And we're seeing that now. In fact, mm -hmm. we're seeing that, that anger almost by our own citizenry that feels detached from civic and civil society. society. Yeah, if, uh, if consistently now for 20 years, uh, uh, several polling companies have asked people, do you believe you live in a society of consent of the governed? And in the most recent one I saw, 24% of the American people answered yes to that question. And Churchill was constantly saying he loved this expression. There are two kinds of countries. They're the ones where peoples own governments, and they're the ones where governments own peoples. He was, he was for the first kind. That means, by the way, a statesman, he was really good at getting and using power. But the great statesmen give it back and make it accountable. And they even don't take it unless it's blessed 
by the citizenry. That's the other thing he knew. He, he, I, there's a, a, again, I would have to go through too many notes to find it, but I remember something about that where he said, you know, if it is not really, if the authority is not really resting with the citizen, then you, you, no matter what the you have a tyranny. It just is that way. The college is finishing the last five volumes of the document volumes of the great Churchill biography, and we're the publishers of that thing. And so I'm doing right now editing. After this show, I'll work on it more. The 1943-44 volume. And Churchill, in the, at the end of the Second World War, getting close toward the end, wants to let go a man who's been in prison named Oswald Mosley, who was a Nazi, an English Nazi. He didn't do anything to strike his country, but they imprisoned him in the emergency threat of invasion. And Churchill, who had no truck with that stuff and did not like this guy, he said, we are not under threat of invasion and we must release him. And we must, and you know, just think how unpopular anybody who had Nazi sympathies was in Britain in 1943. He says, free governments do not have the latitude to penalize their citizens except under process of law. So you see, that's, that's a touchstone with Churchill in the middle of the war. And he felt too that, it's very funny because that's a real twist to, when we talk about law, he thought one of the biggest problems was too many. That's right. He used these lines. He said, if we have 10,000 regulations, you destroy all respect for law. And that's the problem right now. We have 2,000 pages worth of, of documents for one law. And how does not only the citizen really understand it, but even the statesmen don't understand it. And it, it's, it's not necessary. It should be and, and it does, it, it diminishes all laws when you have too many laws, because then we don't really value which ones are important anymore. Yeah, Churchill echoes James Madison about that. He writes in The Federalist Does Madison, uh, if the laws be so voluminous or changeable, it doesn't matter if they're made by the right process. Still, people can have no respect for law. And so you, today, the British House of Commons and the United States Congress make about the same number of laws that they've made for the last 100 years. But there's a new way of making law now, and Churchill very much feared that. So the legislative body elected by the people delegates out rulemaking to hundreds of agencies, and they multiply the laws, and you don't know where they come from, and nobody can keep up with them. Yeah, and that's the, that's the fear of the bureaucracy. It wasn't the fear of the statesmen that made up the bureaucracy. It was the fear of these non-elected officials running these non-elected agencies that were making up these regulations and rules even back, back yeah, then. And, and mind you, Churchill never thought that those people were bad people. Indeed, he identified the civil service in Britain as being one of a, a constitutional safeguard. It's just that when you start making important laws in that way, they themselves are trapped in a process that can be very dangerous. I said I had to bring up one of the appendixes because when I read it, I couldn't believe it. This was from 50 years hence, appendix one in the book. It was December 1931. And he writes about wireless telephones and television affecting how we are going to communicate. Now, uh, you know, 
that we didn't have to, at that time anything remotely like that. So the fact that he even had that as a concept, I thought was fantastic. But what I wanted more to get out of it was that these words, no material progress, even though it takes shapes we cannot now conceive or however it may expand the facilities of man, can bring comfort to his soul. And that goes back, I think, again, to that classic wisdom. Yeah, he, uh, that's one of my favorite things he ever wrote, and one of the most important. And he says, imagine a future in that essay. He says, imagine a future where we can live as long as we want. We can have pleasures unknown to us today. We can go anywhere we want, interplanetary. And then he says, what would be the good of all that to them? What would it tell them about those simple questions that we all long to know? Why are we here? What are we for? And then he says, the there, our souls ache to know those things. And he says, the persistence of those questions is the most hopeful thing of all, because it means that we can never be satisfied with any, anything except a free life where we get to ponder those things. Dr. Arn, those are beautiful words, and our time is up, and I'm going to end with a few more. He consumed his life in producing words. It is no accident that we remember so many of those words. Thank you, Dr. Arn, for sharing Churchill's words with us today. Proud to know you and proud to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us. Now, before Dr. Arn leaves, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from Churchill's trial. Expert knowledge however indispensable, is no substitute for a generous and comprehending outlook upon the human story with all its sadness and with all its unquenchable hope. I'm Barry Kibrick. The human story is filled with indispensable knowledge and a good dose of sadness, but between them both resides our unquenchable hope. Dr. Arn, a true pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.